Well, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word now, we pray that by your spirit, you would indeed speak to us as we receive the food of your holy word and that you would take your truth and plant it deep in us and shape and fashion us in your likeness. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. So please, please do keep your Bible open there, Revelation chapter 2. And we're just looking at verses 8 to 11 this morning. If you cast your mind back to the very first Sunday of last year, 2019, you might remember that we spent that Sunday looking at two of the seven letters to the churches found in Revelation 2 and 3. And the reason we did so was because right at the start, it's a good time, isn't it, just to pause and take stock of where we're at as a church, uh, try and assess how we can be more faithful to Jesus in the year ahead. And in order to do that, what better place to turn than these seven short letters which the risen and the ascended Jesus sent to these different congregations for their benefit and for the whole church's benefit. And in these letters, uh, he speaks to them. He speaks to them about where they're at, how they're doing, how they can grow in faithfulness to him. And so we're going to do the, the same again uh, today on this first Sunday of 2020. We're going to look at two of these seven letters and we'll see what they have to say about how we as a church can be more faithful to Christ in this year ahead. So we're going to start by looking at this short letter to the church in Smyrna. It's a, a city about 40 miles to the north of Ephesus. It's on the, the western coastline of Turkey. It looks out across the Mediterranean Sea over towards Greece. Uh, today, if you go there, the city is called Izmir. You might have heard of it. But it is this same city, Smyrna. And what was it like back in those days, in the first century, when this letter was written to them? Well, basically, there are, I think, three things we need to understand about that city of first century Smyrna. We need to know a little bit about its economy, a little bit about its politics, and a little bit about its religion. Now, economically, this was a very, very wealthy city. A city well known for its amazing architecture, its great learning, its high power in the sciences and in medicine. It was a city where elite people lived, a city where people had impressive careers, opulent houses, economically a very, very wealthy city. 
And then politically, Smyrna was greatly faithful to the Roman Empire. It had a long history throughout its history of being faithful and siding with Rome. And because of that political faithfulness to Rome, this is a city which had been given special privileges by Rome as a free city, rewarded for their faithfulness to Rome. So politically, they're faithful to Rome. And that faithfulness then leads to the third thing that we need to know about Smyrna. And that is its religious landscape. And because of all that faithfulness to Rome, Smyrna was made a center for emperor worship. During the the lifetime of Jesus, in fact, in AD 23, the Roman Senate held a, a kind of competition. And the competition was to decide which city throughout the empire would be granted the first temple to be built in the honor of Tiberius. There were 12 cities in this competition, and Smyrna won. It became this important center for the worship of the emperor. And later on in that first century, emperor worship became compulsory for every Roman citizen on threat of death. And so once each year, each citizen had to burn incense on an altar uh, to the godhead of Caesar or be put to death. Yet there's much more to the religious landscape of Smyrna than just emperor worship. Because alongside that, many other forms of idolatry existed there. Running through this great city with its amazing architecture, There was a street which was named the Golden Street. And along that street, there were five different temples built to various different gods. And then as well as all of those temples, as we'll see later on, there was also a sizable Jewish population in Smyrna as well. And then also on the religious landscape there, of course, we have this small congregation of Christian people seeking to be faithful to Jesus in the midst of this weird and wonderful society in which they lived. What would Jesus have to say to a church in an environment like that? A church in a society of great economic wealth, political faithfulness to the Roman Empire, and given to the religious worship of the emperor and as well as that, many other so-called gods. Well, this letter tells us what Jesus would say to a church like that. And to start with, Jesus introduces himself. He says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. So you see that he introduces himself in two different ways here. Firstly, he describes himself as the first and the last. It's a title that underlines the fact that Jesus is the eternal, sovereign, creator and ruler of all things, in all places and at all times. 
And it's not hard to understand why Jesus introduces himself like that, is it? Because these Christians lived in a society which, as we've seen, was devoted to the Roman emperor, even worshipping him as a god. And you see, the first thing that Jesus reminds his people of as he sends this letter to them is that there is only one true God. One God who made and rules all things. One God who is sovereign over all of history and over everything that happens. And that this little bunch of Christians in Smyrna, they know this God and they love him and they serve him in Christ. He's the first and the last. And then the second way in which Jesus describes himself is that he is the one who died and came to life. Again, as we'll see, it's obvious why Jesus introduces himself like this. These are Christians who are facing the possibility of being put to death for their faith. Put to death if they don't offer worship to Caesar. And they need to know that the God they serve, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the conqueror of death because Jesus has come into this world in order to die and then rise again. So that death is now a defeated enemy and death cannot have the last word over Christians. Now, having introduced himself in these wonderful terms, we'll unpack them as we go on in the letter. But Jesus then turns to his assessment of the church as Jesus, the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. As he looks at this church in Smyrna, as he inspects them and looks at how they're doing, what does he see in the life of that church? Well, the first thing we should notice is what he doesn't see. There's no rebuke for this church at all. That's very unusual. There are seven letters here in Revelation 2 and 3. Five of them contain a rebuke to one extent or another. But with this church, there's no rebuke. And immediately that shows us, doesn't it, something of their great faithfulness to Jesus, even in that environment. And they're being faithful to Jesus in the midst of some very difficult circumstances. Look at how Jesus describes their circumstances in verse 9 and following. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, yet you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, they're a church being persecuted greatly for their faith in Jesus. And it's easy to understand how this came about. As we've seen, they live in a society where people were giving idolatrous worship to Rome and to all sorts of other so-called gods. And the Christians would have stuck out like a sore thumb in that society because of their refusal to go along with all of that idolatry. As Christians, they wouldn't join in with the idolatry, the false worship of the world around them. They wouldn't attend worship at any of those five temples along the Golden Street. They wouldn't give their annual offering, sacrifice to Caesar. 
And it's easy to imagine, isn't it, how the rest of the society then just turned against them and persecuted them for this. And it is what we should always expect as Christ's people in the world. Of course, the society we live in today is in many ways quite different to the society of Smyrna. And yet, nonetheless, there is this same dynamic at work, isn't there? That as Christians, at times, we stick out like a sore thumb in the world. Because we don't worship the things that the society around us worships, whatever those things may be. And we will only give our worship to the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you know what it's like, don't you, to stick out like a sore thumb. Maybe at school, or in your workplace, or amongst your friends, maybe even within your own family. Because out of faithfulness to Jesus, you won't worship what they worship. You won't join in with what they're doing. And inevitably, taking that stand leads to persecution, doesn't it? And again, for us, maybe not on the, the same level <clears throat> excuse me, as the, the persecution that those Christians in Smyrna were facing. And yet, persecution, opposition nonetheless, ridicule, being ostracized, being frozen out. And for the Christians in Smyrna, this persecution had led them into poverty, says Jesus. I remember what we saw at the start. They lived in a city of great economic wealth. And I imagine that before they were converted, some of these members of the church in Smyrna were very wealthy people. They were the high flyers of, of their society, the business people, the, the doctors, the scientists of their day. And yet in the first century world, business and idolatry very often just went hand in hand. And the situation was this, you could only belong to the different guilds, the, the trade guilds, if you signed up to worshipping the gods associated with that trade. And therefore what happened when you became a Christian and you no longer wanted to worship those false gods? Well, the result was, of course, you lost your job immediately. You would no longer have the license to do any trade, any business. It was a simple equation, become a Christian and you become poor in that society. Now again, our circumstances are not identical to the world that they were living in. And yet, there is a sense in which staying faithful as a Christian for a lot of people incurs a financial hit. I know that some of you have turned down job opportunities and you've done so because in good conscience you couldn't do that job on a Sunday, for example. Or perhaps other reasons. And maybe you're not in poverty exactly, but maybe a lot of us know we'd be better off financially if we weren't Christians. And the Christians who have made that kind of sacrifice in order to follow Jesus. Look at what Jesus says to them. There in the middle of verse 9, he says, but you're rich. You're rich. Then yes, by being faithful to him, maybe you're poor financially. And yet in reality, you're rich beyond your wildest dreams. You've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're a spiritual billionaire. 
You're laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in and steal. You've got an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And here on earth you might not have the biggest house or the fanciest car or the trendiest clothes or the most luxurious holidays. And yet Jesus says you're rich because you truly are rich. And as Jesus continues his assessment of the life of this church, he says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And we discover here that there is a wave of persecution coming against the church from the Jewish population in Smyrna. Now, what does Jesus mean there when he says that they say they are Jews, but they are not? What it means is that though these people in the synagogue in Smyrna can trace their family tree perhaps right back to, to Abraham, they're not Abraham's true descendants because they don't have faith in the promised Messiah like Abraham had faith in the promised Messiah. And so it may be the case that they share some of Abraham's DNA, but the bottom line is they share none of Abraham's faith. They don't have faith in the Messiah whom Abraham had faith in. And it's that lack of faith in Jesus that disqualifies them from being truly the descendants of Abraham. This is what Paul is talking about in Galatians 3 when he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. He says, if you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. If you're a Christian today, if you're someone who trusts in Jesus, then you've been grafted into the true Israel of God, as Paul describes the church later on in Galatians, the Israel of God. That we ourselves are the descendants of Abraham because we share the faith that Abraham himself had, whether or not biologically we're descended from him. And Jesus goes so far as to say that not only are these not Jews truly, but in fact this is a synagogue of Satan. And you see, the people within that synagogue had the mind of the dragon, as we were thinking about last week in Revelation 12, that they're under Satan's sway. And under his sway, they join in with the designs of the dragon. That is, they oppose Christ himself and they oppose the people of Christ on earth. And to borrow the, the imagery of Revelation 12, this synagogue is joining in with the dragon's pursuit of the woman in the wilderness, the New Testament church of Jesus Christ on earth. And specifically, they're slandering the church there in Smyrna, making up these false accusations against the church. Uh, and doing so in order that the Roman authorities will, will then come down hard on the church and wipe them out. And you see that slander is going to lead to what Jesus describes in verse 10. Already this church is being persecuted. Already they're in poverty. Already they're being slandered by the Jews in Smyrna. But all of this is about to get a whole lot worse. Jesus says to them, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. 
And you see, Jesus is saying there is going to be an intense period of persecution against the church in Smyrna. And it would appear that the authorities, stirred up by the slander of the Jews against the church there, and ultimately under the influence of Satan himself, and with this mind of the dragon in, in their minds, will crack down on the Christians in Smyrna. Some of the Christians there, says Jesus, will be imprisoned for their faith. And in this way, their faith will be put to the test in order to show its genuineness. And yet Jesus assures them that this period of intense persecution that they're going to face will be relatively brief. It's going to last for 10 days, he says. Now commentators are divided about whether that's a literal 10 days or is it symbolic imagery referring to a a fairly brief period of time. It could be either, I think. And how will this season of brief but intense persecution come to an end? Well, for some of the Christians, no doubt it would mean that they would be released from prison. But for others, the persecution will only come to an end when they are put to death for their faith. That's why Jesus says to them there in the second half of verse 10, be faithful unto death. For many Christians, not just in Smyrna back then, but across the world today, that is how persecution is brought to an end, by death at the hands of their persecutors. And it should make us think, well, how on earth is it possible for Christians to remain faithful to Jesus even unto death. I don't know about you, but I find it hard to read these verses and not to think, well, how would I bear up if I was a Christian in Smyrna back then or in other parts of the world right now? How would I find the strength to be faithful to Jesus even unto death? And of course, it is only by a work of God's grace that it's possible to remain faithful to Jesus, even unto death. But as we look at this letter, I want you to see there are three reasons why we can remain faithful to Jesus and do so even in the face of death, if that's what it takes. And firstly, we can be faithful to Jesus because of who Jesus is. Again, remember that introduction at the start of the letter. He is the first and the last. That is, he is the divine, sovereign, creator and ruler of all things. He rules over all times and all places. He's entirely worthy of all of our trust and faithfulness. Because nothing that we can face, even the bitterest persecution, is outside his sovereign rule over this universe. We can stay faithful to Jesus because of who he is, the first and the last. And not only that, we can be faithful to Jesus, secondly, because of what he has done. That is, he is the one who died and came to life. He's come into this world, he's gone to the cross, he's tasted death himself. And he's done so in our place. And then three days later, conquered death by rising from the dead what better way to face death 
than to do so in trusting yourself to the one who died and came to life. We can be faithful to Jesus because of what he's done. And then thirdly and finally, we can be faithful to Jesus because of all that he promises. All that he promises. Look at what Jesus promises to his faithful ones there in verse 10 and 11. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, another thing that Smyrna was famous for in those days was its athletic contests. And in those days, they didn't give the, the winning athletes a gold medal like they do at the Olympic Games today. Instead, they would give a, a crown, a laurel wreath uh, to the winning athlete for them to wear on, on their head. It was their equivalent of the gold medal. And you see, with that imagery in mind, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna that when they cross the finish line at death, however that comes to them, naturally or by persecution, there will be a crown, there will be a reward which Jesus will graciously and generously bestow on those who are faithful to him. And the crown is life itself, life in all of its fullness, life with him, life forever in a perfect new creation, a creation set free from sin and sickness and suffering forevermore. This is what Jesus promises to his faithful ones, the crown of life. And you see that promise is then underlined again at the end of verse 11. Jesus says the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Maybe you're thinking, what is the second death? You need to know what the first death is, first of all. The first death is, of course, what we normally refer to when we talk of death. The first death is what happens at the end of this life when you breathe your last breath and your heart stops beating and the brain waves flatline. And, of course, that is exactly what a number of the members of the church in Smyrna were facing in the near future that some of them would face that first death in these coming days when this period of intense persecution hit. For some of them, the first death was not very far away at all. What is the second death? Well, the Bible speaks of a death beyond physical death. We might call it death in all of its fullness. When at Christ's return, a person's body and soul is cast into hell for an eternity to experience God's righteous judgment for their rejection of Jesus. And what Jesus promises is this, the one who conquers, that is the one who is faithful to him, despite all of the persecution and the poverty and the slander and the imprisonment and the death that they may face for being faithful to him. Such a person will not be hurt by the second death. Now the first death might hurt for sure, but you will not be hurt by the second death. And so we might put it like this, 
If you've only been born once, you will die twice. That is, you will die at the end of this earthly life. And yet beyond that, a much worse death awaits for eternity. Born once, die twice. And yet if you're born twice, you only die once. Born twice, die once. That is, if you've been born not only physically as we all have, but as well as that, you've been born again. You've been raised to new spiritual life in Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. You will only die once. And beyond physical death, there is no second death for you because Jesus suffered that death for you on the cross and rose again. He took all of it upon himself for you. And because he has done that, you will never know death in all of its fullness. And instead, waiting for you is the crown of life. Life in all of its fullness. And that's what these Christians in Smyrna needed to be assured of as they faced this great persecution, isn't it? It's what we need to be assured of as well as we seek to follow Christ even amidst opposition and hostility today. You see, we can be faithful to Jesus even unto death because of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done and all that Jesus promises to us. About 70 years after this letter was written, there was a, a bishop in this same church in Smyrna, the same congregation. He was called Polycarp. Some of you have heard of him. And he's gone down in history as one of the great examples of what it means to be faithful to Jesus, even unto death. After his death, in the year 155 AD, this church in Smyrna wrote a letter. It was simply entitled, The Martyrdom of Polycarp. And they wrote this letter so that other Christians would be encouraged about how to live in the face of persecution. This is what they wrote. Swear, urged the Roman proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. Then the proconsul said, If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. Polycarp responded, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And Polycarp then, and the fire was lit and he was burned to death for his faith in Christ.
and you see the Lord Jesus who is the first and the last who died and came to life. He says to this church in Smyrna and he says to his people across the world and down the centuries, be faithful to me even unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. If you're Christ's, you only die once. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise and we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who is the first and the last. He is the sovereign creator and ruler of all things. He's the one who died for us and he came to life again. And we thank you that though in this world your people face all kinds of opposition for their faith, persecution, poverty, slander, imprisonment, even death, that in Christ and by his strength we can be faithful even unto death. We thank you for all that Jesus promises to the church, the crown of life and safety from the second death. Thank you that he can offer that and promise it because he is the one who died and rose again. And so help us, we pray, whatever we might be facing, to stay faithful to our Lord Jesus. And in his strong and precious name, we ask all of these things. Amen.